How many are planning to come to the Christmas concert? How many are planning to bring guests with them to the Christmas concert? All right. Praise the Lord. It's going to be a wonderful opportunity to preach the gospel in our community through the powerful music of the Christmas season when the gospel is so woven in to the fabric of that music. We're going to have an opportunity to open the scriptures as well and explain Christmas to people. Why did God send His Son to this planet? What's it all about? We're going to have an opportunity to talk with them about that. And, and we're trusting and praying and hoping that the Lord God would extend His mercy and grace to this community and that many eyes would be opened, hearts would be softened, ears would be unstopped, and that this Christmas season many would give themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith that He might save them. I want to speak with you this morning about love. About love. The word love is one of the most frequently used and regularly misunderstood words in the English language. In our culture, when we use the word love, typically what we mean by that is that we have a strong attraction to either some someone or something based on how it makes us feel. It's really about us when we talk about love. For example, people say, I love ice cream. I love ice cream. I don't just like it. I love ice cream. Why? Because it tastes good. Because it tastes good. Oh, people say, I love that book or that movie or, or that video game. I just love that. Well, because it entertains me. Or the book hopefully informs me. People say, I love my dog. I love my dog. I love my pets. I love my cat. I don't understand that, by the way, but... Just using an example here, an illustration. <laughs> but people say that because of the companionship the animal provides to them. It's, it's a source of companionship. And so they love their animal. Other people love clothes. Oh, I just love that outfit on you. Uh, that, guys don't say that, but... <laughs> Jeremy, I just love that tie on you, brother. Why? Why do we just love our clothes or love that outfit on somebody? Because it's, it makes them attractive. Isn't that really what it's all about? It makes them physically attractive. So we, we love it. Or we might say something like, I just love such and such a vacation spot. I just love Monterey, California. I just love Monterey. The restaurants are so good, the, the view, the bay. There's so many things to do when you're there, places to visit and so forth. So I just love this vacation spot. Why? Well, because when I go there, it creates the illusion that life is just one big party. No cooking, no cleaning. Everybody's there to attend to my needs. I just love it when I'm on vacation and I visit places like that. We carry it over to people too, don't we? We say we just love such and such a person. I love them. But really, when we boil it down most regularly, when we say that, what we're really communicating is that person meets our needs. I love you because you meet my needs. It's this misunderstanding of love that is so woven into our culture, beloved, that lies at the root of the problem of many marriages. We speak about people falling in love, right? And falling out of love. They fell in and they fell out. What, what is that? You fall into a hole. You enter into marriage with joy. But it's our self-orientation, really. 
When my girls were growing up, I told them on a regular basis, if, if you're dating a young man and early in that relationship, he says to you, I love you, what he is really communicating is he loves him and he wants you. That's what he's saying. He loves himself and he wants you. It takes time for a relationship to mature so that there's real love, biblical love involved. What is love? What does the Bible say about love? The scriptures use, the, the New Testament scriptures use two Greek words to speak of love. Two words. They're different words and they express a, a different aspect or concept really of love. The first word that the scripture uses in the verb form is phileo. Phileo. This verb and its noun cognates express a certain kind of love. It speaks about a close personal friendship or a deep affection for another person. It's used that way in John chapter 3 and verse 29. It speaks of the best man at a wedding. The best man at the wedding. He loves the groom. He loves the groom. He has deep affection for the groom. Choose in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37, to speak of family love, familial love. It's used there to speak of the love of parents for their children and children for their parents. That deep affection that exists or should exist within a family. From this Greek word, we get the name of a city on the East Coast called Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Brotherly love. This word is used also to speak of God's love for Jesus. John chapter 5 and verse 20. And that was interesting to me. The Father loves the Son. Is a deep affection for his son. It's also used to speak of the love of the father for his children, the believers, us. He has a deep affection for us. This is a great word that these New Testament writers use. But they use this word sparingly in the New Testament. It's, it's not the predominant word for love in the New Testament. It's a very good word, a very legitimate word. It communicates some very important concepts. But it's not the main word. Far and away, the main word, the main verb and noun cognate for love in the New Testament is the word agapao. Agape. Agape love. That is... As I say, far and away, the predominant New Testament word for love. If you're reading your New Testament and you see translated love in English, you can be very safe in assuming that it's probably speaking about agapao or agape love. This word expresses a desire that produces choices and actions. That's what it means. To love someone with an agape love is to have a desire for them, a desire that produces choice on your part and action that flow out of it. It's an action word. It can be used in a negative sense in the Scriptures. Not a lot of places, but there are some. And I think, just to mention a couple, because they they illustrate the word for us, in John chapter 12, verse 43, it says that those officials within Judaism at the end of Jesus' public ministry who knew him to be the Messiah but were unwilling to make a public stand for him, it said that the reason they shrunk back because they were loving the praise of men. Loving the praise of men. Agape, used there. Agape, it was a desire that produced a choice, that produced an action. The choice and the action was that they wanted the approval of men rather than aligning themselves with God. So it's used there in a negative negative way. It's it's also used in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10 there 
to speak of Demas who loved this present world. Love for the present world. It produced an action, right? He fled and left Paul. So this is always an action word. It's the predominant New Testament word and the predominant uses of it in the New Testament are positive, very positive. In fact, the Christian church latched onto this Greek word in order to express their particular understanding of the nature of Christian love. And so it is the predominant word of the New Testament. It refers to a divine, selfless love that will go to any length to attain the well-being of its objects. A selfless love that will go to any length, any length necessary to attain the well-being of its objects. Agape love is unselfish. It is an unselfish love, and it is a costly love. It is a costly love. It is not a feeling. It is an act of the will. It begins in the will. It begins with a desire that produces a choice that produces an action. It begins in the will. Probably the most graphic illustration the most graphic illustration of agape love is Christmas and the cross. Christmas and the cross. For God so loved the world that He did what? He gave. He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Have everlasting life. God loved people that were unlovable. People that were hostile. People that would put His own Son on a cross. And yet He loved them and gave to them. Agape love. Agape love. The New Testament, by the way, says that agape love is the evidence that we have eternal life. Let me say that again. Agape love is the evidence that you and I possess eternal life. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. That is that if we do not express this kind of love, if this agape love is not part of who we are, then we do not know God. We do not know God. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Jeremy read a little bit earlier. It is because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that we are able then to love other people. It is the defining mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. No love, no discipleship. Follower of Jesus Christ manifests the love of God. You can't have one without the other. Can't be. Open your Bibles to John chapter 13. Let me just show you a few passages here. Page 1078 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Love is the badge of discipleship. It is the badge of discipleship. Our ushers have a little badge they wear on their jacket on Sunday morning if they're working. It says guest services. That's so you know who they are. It distinguishes them. It makes them stand out. Love is the badge that makes us stand out. That identifies us as followers of Jesus Christ. John chapter 13, verses 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. 
even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Wow. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not all men will know you are my disciples if you open your mouth and tell them so. We should open our mouths. We should tell them we are disciples of Jesus Christ. But love, but love is the, is the distinguishing mark. It is what cannot be falsified. It is the brand of a Christian. Turn to the right, Galatians chapter 5, page 1168. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Galatians 5.22, in here of Galatians 5, Paul is drawing a contrast between those who are led by the flesh and those who are led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the flesh do not know Christ. But those who are led by the Spirit, who manifest the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. First. First in the list, love. It's the evidence. The Spirit of God is the evidence of the life of God dwelling within us. Love. Turn back to the left to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, page 10, 1011. Mark 12, verses 28 and following. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 and following. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he, that is Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. The whole law can be summed up in love for God and love for neighbor. Agape love. Not love for God and toleration of neighbor. Love for neighbor. Love for neighbor. Back to the right, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, page 1150, 1150. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is the love chapter, isn't that true? It's read at weddings all over the English-speaking world, yanked entirely out of its context. It appears here for the, in the midst of a discussion of spiritual gifts in one of the most unloving churches of the New Testament, the church at Corinth. But in the midst of this discussion of spiritual gifts and their priorities and rankings and, and purposes and all of that, we get to chapter 13 and verse 13. And Paul says, Now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. That is the greatest gift given by the Spirit of God to the people of God is love. It is love. All other spiritual gifts will fade away. Love 
will remain. It will remain. Now turn to Romans chapter 12. Page 1136. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, is one of the most challenging sections of Scripture that we are going to encounter together at least in the next year. I'll just tell you right now. This section of Scripture, these few verses, really, are incredibly challenging. When I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking about going through this section 9 to 21 in just maybe two weeks. But as I meditated on it, I thought, how many times have I read Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21? Many times, dozens of times I have read it and moved quickly through it. I want to slow down and I want to let it sink in. I want to let it marinate on my soul and I want to let it marinate on our souls. So we're not going to jet through this. Because you know what, beloved? This section, verses 9 through 21 is the application of the gospel of chapters 1 through 11. Oh, there's a couple more topics he's going to pick up, certainly our relationship to the government, which really just flows out of the end of chapter 12. And he's going to speak about how we ought to relate to one another in the area of of differences of opinion, gray matters within the body, and we will talk about those. But 9 through 21 sets it all up, and it is the direct outflow of the gospel of chapters 1 through 11. We know the gospel, yes. We believe the gospel, yes. The gospel changes us, yes. How? How? Verses 9 through 21. That's how. That's how. It is the outworking, the fleshing out of the will of God, chapter 12, verse 2. That you may prove, that is discern, that is discover what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Laid out for us here, verses 9 through 21. It is the will of God. The power to understand and to implement the love is the gospel. So this is not going to be a series of sermons on self-effort. What I need to do is grab a hold of my bootstraps and pull a little harder so that I can love you a little more. No. In fact, if we're honest with each other, that's usually our approach to love. A little more effort. But what drives it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto what? Salvation. A changed life, a transformed life. It lies in the gospel. So it's going to be gospel preaching for a while. As we work on love. Now Paul, in verses 9 through 21 He doesn't give what is a readily discernible structure. It doesn't yield itself easily to three points or or anything like that. Commentators are all over the place on what what they think he's doing here. There aren't even hardly any verbs in this whole section. It's just clauses strung together. But I believe, I'm convinced, that what's running in the background here is love. It's all about love. This whole section. Verses 9 through 21 is all about love. And what 
Paul is doing is he is looking at love in a bunch of different directions. He's allowing us to look at it too and in the process to evaluate our own love. His love for those inside the body. Notice the one another's, verse 10, give preference to one another. Do you see that? Verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another. So it is love within the body, the one another's point to that reality. It is within the body of Christ. That is not this universal body of Christ. That is Foothill Bible Church body of Christ, local body of Christ. Love within this body. And it is love to all mankind outside the body of Christ. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So it's love, biblical love, agape love, love of desire producing choice, producing result or action. Not a feeling, but an act of the will to those inside and those outside. Guess what? As everybody, you're either inside or you're outside. This is love for everybody that he's talking about. So as I was thinking about how to structure this, I came across the idea that it's a recipe. It's a recipe. It's kind of Christmas time. People are baking. Isn't that right? Doing your Christmas baking. So this is a recipe. This is the apostolic recipe for love. Paul's recipe for love. How do I make love? A little of this, a little of that. There are 12 ingredients in Paul's recipe here. 12 ingredients of love. 12 main ingredients. And all of these ingredients are necessary to produce a Christian love that tastes good both to people inside the church and outside the church. I mean, who wants to bake something that doesn't taste good? I remember some years ago when one of my children were learning how to cook, they were going to make pancakes. Great. I love pancakes. I just like pancakes in which you don't substitute salt for sugar. They look on the outside like pancakes. They taste on the inside not like pancakes. Every component of the ingredients list is necessary. Isn't that true? You have to have all the ingredients in proper proportions mixed in in order to get the result. So when we look at this and evaluate ourselves and our cooking, if you like that, we evaluate our own cooking against the Apostle Paul's recipe, it's not enough to just have 10 out of 12. We need 12 for 12. 12 for 12. This is the basis by which we will evaluate our own cooking and determine the flavor of our love. What does your love taste like today? You can compare it to the apostolic recipe. Now, on the back of your bulletin, just so you know where we're going, flip it over there, and I listed the 12 ingredients for you. What I did was group them. There are actually, I believe, 25 separate ingredients, but we lumped them into family groups make this a simple recipe to follow so here they are love is sincere love is discerning love is affectionate love is respectful love is passionate love is patient love is generous love is kind love is sympathetic love is humble. Love is peaceful and love is restrained. Love for those inside and outside the local church. So let's begin looking at the recipe this morning. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 9. The secretary saw this. She said, are you kidding me? 9A? And I said, no, I'm not kidding you. That's right, 9A. Love is, what? Talk to me. Sincere. Love is sincere. Ingredient number one. Love is sincere. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, it's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul does not exhort the believers to demonstrate love. He assumes that they will have love. He assumes it exists. What he is speaking to them about is the quality of their love. He is zeroing in on the quality of the love here, and he's zeroing in first on the quality of sincerity. Sincerity. Many people profess love, but a good deal of those professions are insincere. They are insincere. Now, literally, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that love is anupakritos in the Greek. Anupakritos. A Greek word is a combination of the word hypocritos and the alpha privative on, which means not or without. Anapocritos literally means without hypocrisy. Hypocritos, hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. This word, this Greek word, is translated in other places as genuine. It is also translated sincere. So one is speaking of it kind of from the negative point of view, and the other is speaking about it in the more positive sense. It is to be without hypocrisy. It is to be sincere. It is to be genuine. The reference to a hypocrite goes back to the Greek theater. A hypocrite was the name given to the actor in a Greek play who would hold up a mask And there in the play, holding the mask up on a little stick in front of his face or her face, would speak and act out the part that they were portraying in that particular play or drama. They were the hypocrite. New Testament usage takes that terminology and gives it a decidedly unfavorable connotation, right? That's come to us that way in the English language. If I say you're a hypocrite, you're not particularly pleased with that kind of statement. But that's where it comes from. What Paul is saying here to the church in Rome in the most simple terms is he is exhorting the believers in Rome and by extension us because he is an apostle so he speaks with the authority of Christ. He is, he is exhorting them and is he extort, exhorting us We are not to turn the church into a stage and act as if we truly love one another when we don't. This is not a show. This is not a stage. We're not called upon to play at something, to act at something, to convince somebody of something that it's true when it's really not. Nothing undermines the message of Christianity more than those who profess to love one another and do not. Nothing. By their words and by their deeds, it's clearly apparent that regardless of what they say, they do not love each other. This is serious stuff. Hypocrisy is very serious. The most graphic illustration of the most diabolical illustration of hypocrisy when it comes to love is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot betrayed his master to the Romans. How? With a kiss. With a kiss. That which should be reserved as a demonstration of love and affection became the means by which he betrayed The Messiah. He was a hypocrite. A hypocrite. How do we pretend to love each other? What does it look like? 
Well, here are a few illustrations for us. We pretend to love someone when we act happy to see them when we really aren't. Hey, brother, where you been? I've missed you. Liar. Liar. You haven't missed him. You didn't even know he was gone. Hypocrite. Or how about when we lead other people to believe that through our words we care about them when we really don't care about them. When they are the last thing on our mind. Where have you been? Where have you been? I've missed you. Did you pray for me while I was gone? No. Because I, you really weren't on my mind. Truth, truth be told, you really weren't on my mind. Or we love hypocritically when we gossip about people or pretend to share prayer requests out of concern for them, but when in reality it's nothing more than gossip. Pray for so-and-so, and then out it spills, right? We love them. That's why we're asking people to pray for them, right? Liar. It's a convenient way to spill out the garbage. We're hypocritical in our love for people when we serve them in order to be seen serving them. So that others will see us serving them and think us righteous. Or because it's a duty that we have to do, and if we didn't do our duty, then people would think poorly of us. So we serve. We minister. Not because we love because our motives are very, very impure. We place limits on the level of sacrifice that we're willing to make based on what is convenient to us. Sure, I'll help you. If it's convenient to me. I was thinking about this. The Lord really pierced my heart about something that I did many years ago. There was a particular family in the church and they were having tremendous marital problems. Marital problems of their own creation. They were constantly at each other's throats and constantly calling me to referee and supervise. You know, get back to your corners and let's try again. One night I received a phone call. It was in the middle of the night. I don't remember. It was after midnight. Woke me up. I received a phone call. Will you receive a collect phone call from such and such person? And in that instant in time, I thought I did not want to talk to him. They probably had another fight. Maybe she's thrown him out. He can just cool his heels for the night and I'll deal with it in the morning. No. And I hung up. Well, in those days when maybe it's true still, I don't know. When you made a collect phone call, the person, the party at the other end could hear the response. I found out later his car had broken down. He was on the side of the road and he needed help. And I was too busy, too tired, too unwilling to love him. So I hung up on him. Sincere love, brothers and sisters, is an agape love. It is a selfless love. It is a costly love. It is a love that does not draw boundaries and limits. It's a love that doesn't operate when it's convenient for us and when it's not, we pull it back. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, through love, serve one another. Serve one another. 
John says, 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Deed and truth. Beloved, the greatest danger of hypocritical love, the greatest danger of all is not that we fool and deceive other people. That's not the greatest danger. You can fool me and I can fool you and I have fooled you. And I ask your forgiveness for sinning against you in that way. And you have fooled each other. I know that to be true. So the greatest danger doesn't lie in that that we can fool each other. Here's the greatest danger. The greatest danger lies in that we fool ourselves. We fool ourselves into thinking we really are loving somebody when we're not. Self-deception when it comes to the question of love is the greatest danger of all. Because if you are not loving and you know you're not loving, you have opportunity to do what? You can repent and start again. But if you are self-deceived in this matter, you don't even know that you have to repent. You're trapped. That's why it's so huge that we take the time to look at this section together in in some measure of detail because if you will read over it quickly like i know you have like i have many many times oh i go through the list well i'm doing better at some than at others but generally i think i touch all those bases boom off i go self-deceived self-deceived men were to love our wives as christ loved the church how do you think you're doing are you doing a good job Are you self-deceived? If it's not costing me anything, I am not loving her as Christ loved the church. If there's no cost involved, there's no sacrifice involved, and therefore there is no agape love involved. When we are self-deceived, we think, this church body is not very loving. It's not very loving because other people are not acting in a very loving way. What we fail to recognize, though, is really what the body is, is the collective effort of all of the members. If this body is not loving as Christ would have us love, it's because you are not loving as Christ would have you love. It is not everyone else's fault. It is your fault. And it is my fault. We are a collective whole. We are a body. Is that not right? This is eminently practical. Eminently practical. Paul's recipe for love, the first ingredient, is a sincere love. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Question. Does your recipe have enough of this ingredient? Does it have it at all? How's the flavor of your love? How does it taste? I said to you in the preparation of this, and I'm sure it will continue to be, my own heart is ripped open. My own heart is ripped open here. I do not make any claim to having arrived. In fact, going through this text and thinking about this, what it is just reinforced to me all over again is that the, that the walk of faith is a fight. It is a fight. This is not something you check off. I am a sincere lover. Check. Right? Liar? (laughs) It is something I must 
wrestle with. I must fight. It is something I will not master until Christ comes and takes me home. I will fight with this my whole life. And so will you. So will you. It is a constant fight. It is a difficult fight. It is a fight in which victory comes only in obedience to the Word of God, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God who authored it. That is the only way we will achieve any measure of victory here. Now, Paul has given to us a battle plan. Verses 1 and 2. I warned you now, didn't I? I warned you that we would come back to these verses. We will continue to come back to these verses until you have it memorized and then until we are implementing it in our life. If we are going to successfully wage this battle, then we wage it on the basis of four keys. Isn't that right? Help me out. What was the first key? To remember. To remember what? The mercies of God. Shorthand for what? The gospel. Romans chapters 1 through 11. We begin by remembering the gospel. And since our memory is poor, it requires constant refreshing dwelling on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must remember the mercies of God. Secondly, we must turn another key. What is that key? Relinquish. Relinquish what? Relinquish ourselves to whom? To God. Relinquish ourselves to God. Why? Because you have no rights. Do you remember that? Officer, read him his rights. You have no rights. You are a doulos. You are a slave of Jesus Christ. Relinquish yourself to God. Remember the gospel. Relinquish yourself to God. Number three key. Resist. Resist the world's corruption. Stop drinking at the poison fountain. Stop pouring in crud. And number four, renew your mind. Renew your mind through the Word of God. Remember, relinquish, resist, and renew. And when we implement Paul's gospel strategy, then when verses 9 through 21 will begin to flow, the power to do it, will be there with us. The purpose of, of all of this is not so that we can all slither out under the door every week. Woe is me. You're right. Woe is you. And woe is me. I'm entirely dependent on the gospel of Jesus Christ who saves me from my sin and empowers me to begin to live a life of righteousness. The reason we look at this together, beloved, is because we want to live for Christ's glory. Isn't that true? Is that true? One more time. Is that true? Okay. So I make sure that we're on the same page here. This is the means by which we evaluate how we're doing. Will you engage the enemy? Will you engage the enemy in gospel power? I pray that you will. I pray that I will. There are some of you here this morning, though, that have no gospel power at all. The reason you have no gospel power is because you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You might know of him, but you do not know him. You are still clinging to your own self-righteousness. Like a little child, me do it. Let me ask you a question of self-diagnostic. How's it going for you? 
How is it going for you? How, how good a job are you doing managing your own life? Are you able to resist sin? Are your thoughts pure? Are you able to live for other people's benefit? Do you love God? We know the answer, you don't. You don't. But God invites you this day to be born anew. If you will humble yourself and throw yourself onto the mercy of God, cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Believe that His death was for your benefit. That His life of righteousness becomes your life by faith. That when God looks upon you, He sees not your filth, but He sees the glory of Jesus Christ wrapped around you as a robe of righteousness put on by faith. The Scripture says you will be saved. You can do that right now, right where you are. Call out to Christ to save you. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, when we look at a section of Scripture like this, we are vividly reminded of our need for a Savior. We do not love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We are lawbreakers. The two greatest commands we cannot keep. Oh Lord, be merciful to us. Look upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ when you look upon us. Count not our trespasses against us, but against Him. Work in our hearts, our Father, that we would be drawn to your scriptures in dependence on your Holy Spirit. And our Father, I pray that as we go into a new year together and evaluate our Christian lives in light of your word here, that you would do something revolutionary in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters. Oh Lord, I pray that this church, this local assembly, this local body, this local fellowship would become so known for its love for one another that the city of Upland would buzz as people talk about it. That when we meet our friends and our neighbors, when we go door to door, when we when we seek to speak to them about Jesus Christ and we identify where we are from and who we are part of that they will say I've heard of them they love each other tell me more about this gospel oh Lord will you change us for Jesus sake amen